as the Christian movement grew after the resurrection of Jesus, the concept of the church developed as well. Jesus preached about the church and died for the church. The apostles were baptizing people into the church. And the Holy Spirit inspired men to write about the church. To the Christians of the first century, the church was very important. The church was valuable. And I think about scriptures like Acts chapter 20, verse 28, which say, Therefore take heed to yourselves and to all the flock among which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers, to shepherd the church of God, which He purchased with His own blood. What great value the church had to Jesus and to those in the first century. Sadly, history has often been unkind to the church, and some organizations and individuals have done wicked things. In the name of Jesus and in the name of the church, they have robbed and persecuted and destroyed their neighbors and countrymen, and history has recorded people doing these things in the name of Jesus or in the name of a church. But you know what? These men did not act with God's authority. Then they don't act with God's authority today. Their work, however, was damaging. So whether it was persecution or war or even just you know, something that, that may be closer to today's, uh, I guess, bad representation would be some of the harsh words that people have in the name of Jesus and that interpersonal conflict where there's just very ugly and hate-filled arguments in the name of Jesus. Well, it's had its influence and it's had its effect. In the modern era, church has become a place where you go and uh, it can be in organizations comparable with business and with education. And because of, of the modern loss of what church is and because of that historical uh, stain that many organizations and individuals have put on the church, many have lost their faith in the church and what church stands for. And so a popular alternative among those who uh, desire to know God is to have a personal relationship with Jesus apart from the church. How can Christians and how can Bible students seek out God's will for the church instead of listening to those who would badmouth the church or instead of seeking Jesus and kind of setting the church aside when we see such great examples in the scripture of how valuable the church is how can we find God's will for the church well thankfully we don't have to only rely on history and on subjective emotions to better understand the Lord's church there is pure and simple teaching that's found in the scriptures we can have a proper mindset about the church. And we can see that it's valuable the way that they saw it in the Bible. And we can appreciate that the church was bought with the blood of Jesus, and so it matters to you and I today. Let's consider then the church of the Bible. What we're going to do today is ask the question, what is the church of the Bible? Uh, there are other studies that go along with this series, and we'll, I'll hope to present them to you in the future, about how the church operates and why the church matters. But for today, I'd like for us to, to come to a great understanding of what church is, according to the Bible. And we'll look at these four things, attributes or characteristics of the church. We'll look at some metaphors of the church. 
ways to help give example for how God views the church and how we can as well. We'll look at some prophecies that help uh, add validity to what the church is based on the, the evidence that comes from that time in between when they were written and when it was fulfilled. And then we'll conclude with looking at the saving body type and anti-type and just how precious the church can be to you and me. Let's begin with looking at some attributes of the church. The Bible teaches that the church is a group of people who assemble together. The word church is translated from the Greek word ekklesia, and it means a calling out, a meeting, or an assembly. We see a great example of that in uh, Acts chapter 19, verse 33. And when the Bible uses the concept of church, it is always referring to the people who are assembling together and not the place where they are assembling. Right? So the building or the house or the shade under the tree or, or wherever the church is gathering, the Bible is always referring to the people who have gathered together. Great example. Acts chapter 12, verse 5, the Bible says, Peter was therefore kept in prison under constant and prompt, rather, but constant prayer was offered to God for him by the church. Now, there was no building that prayed for him. You know, the, the building itself wasn't holy. They were just gathered together in that room praying. It was the people who were offering the prayers to God. You know, if the church was a building, it would actually make things a whole lot easier because if you thought about it, uh, you know, if the place was what was holy and the places where it uh, we could go to be saved, then, man, we could just form some sort of Christian brute squad and go out into the world and just force people, tie them up and throw them in here and say, trust me, it's for your own good. But that's not what church is. Church isn't a place. It's the people assembled together. Now, beyond that, it, it's not just a, a group of people who get together, but it's a group of people who have been called out, specifically. You know, any time that a group of people get together does not necessarily make a church. Uh, when people are involved in organizations that are not religious, you know, that, that's an assembly, but it doesn't make it the church. You see, the church is a group of people who assemble together and have been called out. The Greek word again, ekklesia, being translated as called out. And it's talking about a distinction, a distinction that we have from the world, such as in 1 John chapter 2, verse 15 through 17, where the Bible tells us that we're not to be like the world or to love the world or, or to seek after the things of the world, but rather to be different. And we've been called out of that worldly nature and into God's holy nature, into God's holy uh, kingdom, that is the church. I want you to consider what 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 9 says. But you are a, a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, his own special people, that you may proclaim the praises of him who called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. Now being called out is more than just attending services. It's more than just warming the pew. You haven't been called out just simply by going to a place but rather by obeying the gospel, by being saved, by being baptized, you are called out from the world and into a community of believers that has also given up the worldly ways and seeking gods. 
Now, very quickly, uh, we'll go through these next points. I feel like I've taken a lot of time expressing that the church is the people gathered together. But we also notice that the Bible teaches that the church belongs to Jesus. Ephesians 5.23, Colossians 1.18 calls Jesus the head of the church. And because he's head, that means he determines how it operates and how it functions. And none of us have a say in the operations of the church. We simply are going to obey as Jesus commands. The Bible also teaches that Jesus has but one church. Matthew 16, verse 18 says, Upon this rock I will build my church. Now, truly, as this illustration indicates, uh, there are congregations of Jesus' church all over the world. And so we're, we're able to identify the the, the dual nature of the church, there is the church universal, talking about all believers all over the world, and then there is the church local, meaning the local assembly of believers who gather together for the express purpose of worshiping God and edifying each other. But Jesus only has one, and that there, there shouldn't be any controversy in that. Uh, I am no better than anyone else simply by saying that Jesus has one church. I'm not trying to lift myself up I'm not trying to make myself better. I'm expressing a fact. Jesus said, I will build my church. And we are duty-bound to be a part of it and to tell others to be a part of the church that Jesus built. Now, the Bible also teaches that the church has no man-made name. And we can look in Scripture to see several different identifying descriptions about the church. But the church is just simply the church. Now, the, the, these uh, descriptions include the church of Christ, Romans chapter 16, 16, or the church of the firstborn, the church of God, the church of the living God, the church uh, located in a specific city like the church in Corinth. There's the uh, way, it's just simply called the way or Jesus way or the church. And, and so the, the point of this attribute is that we don't want to identify ourselves with any sort of theologian or great popular preacher or a specific methodology or, or doctrine. We just want to belong to Jesus. Because notice, in all of these descriptions, the biblical description focuses on the relationship between Jesus and the church. And we want to be a part of that. You know, we wear the, the, the name Church of Christ on our front door whenever you come in. You're going to see Church of Christ. Why do we put that there? Do we put it there so that we can explain to others that we're affiliated with a, a specific group of people uh, that have our headquarters in this location and uh, we have these catechisms that we No. We're, we don't put Church of Christ on our door because we want people to understand that we're part of XYZ denomination. We put Church of Christ on the door because it is the, the, the simplest, the most biblical way of explaining to others that we belong to Jesus and that we're part of a brotherhood that belongs to Jesus, that we're part of a church all over the world that belongs to Jesus and we wear His name because we belong to Jesus. Finally, the Bible teaches that the church strives for unity. Ephesians chapter 4, verse 3 and 4 says to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace and that there is one body and one Spirit, one Lord, one faith, one baptism. 
We strive for unity. Sometimes unity um, is spoiled. It's spoiled because people bring in their practices or their think-sos or their uh, men that they revere, and as a result of that, there is division. But Paul encouraged us in 1 Corinthians 1, verse 10 through 13, by saying, Now I plead with you, brethren, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you all speak the same thing, and that there be no divisions among you, but that you be perfectly joined together in the same mind and the same subject, and the same judgment, rather. The church of Christ should be united in a common love for Jesus, a common cause of sharing the gospel, a common obedience to the word of God. Now, very quickly, let's consider four metaphors about the Lord's church. And a metaphor simply is a word picture or an example to help describe the relationship that Jesus has with the church that he built, right? So uh, not only is our name the Church of Christ to express that we belong to Jesus, but the metaphors of the church also are intended to explain that the church and Jesus have an intimate relationship together. We see, for example, that Jesus and the church are seen as a king and servants. From John 18, verse 36, where the Bible says, My kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would fight so that I should not be delivered of the Jews. But now my kingdom is not of this world. The spiritual nature of Jesus' kingdom makes it different than all other kingdoms. It's spiritual, filled with servants, serving Jesus and His spiritual way, serving one another according to the honor and the service and the obedience that we first saw in our great King Jesus. The Bible also teaches that the church and Jesus share a relationship like a shepherd and sheep. Jesus protects, guides, and cares for us like a flock of sheep. And the, the Bible says in John chapter 10, verse 11 and 12, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd gives his life for the sheep. But a hireling, he who is not the shepherd and who does not own the sheep, sees the wolf coming and leaves the sheep and flees, and the wolf catches the sheep and scatters them. When Jesus was crucified on the cross, he expressed the ultimate act of protection. The ultimate act by laying down his life for us, laying down his life for the flock. The Bible also says in Colossians 1.18 and 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 27, that Jesus is like a head and we are like the body. Meaning that without the head, or without the body rather, without the head, excuse me, the body simply can't survive. That we find direction and life and sustenance from the head. And all of our work is done according to what is instructed by the head. 1 Corinthians 12 verse 27 says, Now you are the body of Christ and members individually. Finally, we can observe that the scripture in Ephesians chapter 5, verse 22 through 25, shows that Jesus and the church are seen like a husband and a wife. Just as Jesus loves and leads the church and lays down his life for it, Paul says in Ephesians 5 that husbands are to love and lead our wives and be willing to lay down our lives for them as well. What beautiful metaphors we see of a relationship. Of, of this biblical description of what the church means to Jesus and why he would purchase it with his own blood. 
Remember that scripture, Acts chapter 20, verse 28, showing that Jesus purchased the church with his own blood. We are bought by Jesus. And the relationship we have with him, as we see, you know, king and servant, uh, head and body, shepherd and sheep, husband and wife, is intended to show that this group of people that's assembled together, that's been called out for the world, that are called out from the world, is valuable and precious. And Jesus was willing to pay the price for us, so how should we live in response to that? This is a great, uh, I guess, conclusion or epiphany that we can reach when we see how valuable the church is. You know, we can also consider prophecies about the church. This is the third of four sections in this study. Looking back on time at those who received direct revelation from God. And they would prophesy, for example, about the Messiah. That is the anointed one who was to come. And this great kingdom that he was going to establish. And you know, the, the national expectation of the Jewish nation at the time of Jesus was that it would be a military king. But these prophecies were showing not a military force, rather a spiritual force, a spiritual Messiah and a spiritual kingdom. The benefit of fulfilled prophecy in hindsight is to understand that he came as the prince of peace, not the warrior king. And the Bible shows the establishment of a spiritual kingdom. And so we'll begin with that by looking at a great mountain, a prophecy found in Daniel, Daniel, over 600 years before the time that the church came into existence, prophesied that this spiritual kingdom would be established. And uh, King Nebuchadnezzar in this chapter has had a dream. There's this great statue that's in and of itself is fulfilled prophecy because even though Nebuchadnezzar was the head, the king of Babylon, that golden head in the statue, uh, the prophet also explained that there would be a kingdom after him, the Medo-Persian Empire and then a Grecian empire, and then a Roman empire. So hundreds of years before those kingdoms came to world domination, uh, it was prophesied that they would. That in itself is a great piece of evidence. But the, at the end of this dream, there was a, this great stone or rock that came down and it just crushed the statue, knocking it over and toppling it down to bits. What was the stone that crushed it? Well, Daniel saw the church a spiritual kingdom that would be able to conquer any kingdom on this world, not through uh, physical violence, and not through overtaking governments or, or through great conquest of war, but through spiritually bringing the gospel to all nations. And just how the world being turned on its head, like Acts chapter 17 verse 6 says, that the Christians that came to this place, they've turned the world upside down, Kingdoms are overthrown because spiritually anyone can become a Christian. And it wouldn't matter if you were Babylonian or Persian or Grecian or Roman. It wouldn't matter if you were any of those. You could become a part of this spiritual kingdom. And that kind of flips the whole world order on its head. The next prophecy that we'll consider is the idea of miraculous gifts being an essential part of the church's identity in the first century. It comes from the prophet Joel, who hundreds of years before the church came into existence, prophesied where there would be a time when natural man would have supernatural gifts in a time that anybody in the world could have faith in God and could be saved. So it's echoing that concept of that, that spiritual rock that we just read about toppling the statue and turning the world on its head. Anyone can be saved. Anyone can be a part of that spiritual kingdom. 
I want to read it to you. It's from Joel chapter 2, verse 28, and it says, It shall come to pass afterward that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. Your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, and your old men shall dream dreams, your young men shall see visions. And also on my men servants and my maid servants I will pour out my spirit in those days, and it shall come to pass that whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. Now the first part of this prophetic verses deals specifically with that age of miracles in the first century. And we've talked about that recently with the, the bounty of gifts from 1 Corinthians 12 through 14. The second part of it, rather, uh, comes from Romans chapter 1, verse 16 and Romans 10, being a prophecy that salvation would come to all who call on the name of the Lord. And then another prophecy about the church is from Zechariah chapter 6, verse 12 and 13, where uh, the prophet, 600 years before Jesus is born, talks about how there would be one who would come as both king and priest. And he would sit on his throne and he would rule and have the, a new temple. And what is the temple? What's the temple where Jesus is going to rule? It's not a place. It's a people. Because we are that spiritual people. And we serve in that spiritual kingdom. 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 9 talks about how we are that royal priesthood and that we come to Jesus to serve in His spiritual kingdom. And so as uh, these prophecies were made, it helps us understand that the church is part of God's plan. And that, it was the, that they were made and intended for us to see that hundreds of years before it came into existence, God already had the idea established that the church would be a part of the Christian experience. Now, the last thing that we'll talk about is the saving body type, any type that we see from the church. I want to go back to that idea that we talk about uh, when somebody is maybe disenchanted with the idea of church or the idea of religion, and so they come up with the conclusion, it doesn't matter where you go to church uh, or if you go to church, it matters if you have a personal relationship with Jesus. You know, that statement has truth in it, but it also has misinformation in it. They're misinformed. Here's the truth element that I want to begin with. It does matter that you have a relationship with Jesus. I mean, just looking at the metaphors from the study that we've done today, we can see that, that you have to have a relationship with Jesus. It's comparable to a husband and wife, to a sheep and a flock, to a body and a a head to a king and servants. You have a relationship with Jesus. That's an essential part of becoming a Christian. But another essential part of becoming a Christian is to being a part of the church, to joining the church. And that concept of being a part of it or joining it is not where you go and you get a certificate saying you've uh, joined this particular location or that you've gone through a series of studies and now you are a full-fledged member of this special group. To be a part of the church is another way of saying, I'm saved. I'm a Christian. I'm a part of the church. And we base that off of Acts chapter 2, verse 47, where the Bible says, And the Lord added to the church daily those who are being saved. A person is added to the church by God the moment that they become a Christian. The moment that you're saved, when you were baptized and your sins were washed away, God added you to the church. And, and it, this wasn't something that you uh, were elected into by a board of members 
or that you receive certification of. It just happened. It's synonymous. To be baptized, to be saved, and to be added to the church are the same concept of joining a group of people who have that special relationship with Jesus. Now, what I'd like to do is give you a couple examples because that saving body idea is very common in the Old Testament so that it can be fulfilled in the New Testament and we can appreciate and understand how the church is the saving body. So let's just look at a couple real quick from the Old Testament that are examples. First, we can consider Noah's Ark and how it is a type of the church, and specifically it's a type of a saving body uh, compared to everything else around it. First, we can observe that there is one entrance. You know, the ark had just one door, Genesis 6, 16 says, and there was only that one way in. And once everybody went in who had faith and then the animals came in, then God shut the door and there was no longer a way. In the same way, there is but one door into the saving body of the church, and that is through Jesus Christ. Jesus said in John 10, verse 9, I am the door. And so any other attempt to access the ark, whether uh, you know, people tried to throw a rope on it or tried to make a different door into it, they failed. And everyone who was outside of it perished. And the same is true with trying to access the Lord's church, being a part of that body. It happens through Jesus. It's not through a different gospel, not through a different holy book, it's not through a different holy man or a different religious leader. It comes through Jesus. In John chapter 14, verse 6, Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no man comes to the Father except through me. And his apostles in the book of Acts, echoed that same sentiment in chapter 4, verse 12, where they said, there is no other name under heaven given to men by which we must be saved. There is an exclusivity and an inclusivity to the saving body. It is exclusive in that Jesus is the way in. And it is inclusive in that Jesus stands there and wants everybody to come in. It doesn't matter what our background is. The church is inclusive. We want all to be saved. And it's exclusive that Jesus stands as the door and by a salvation by grace through faith in Jesus and an obedience of the gospel, that faith being obedient gospel, uh, comes through Jesus Christ. Now, the Bible also says, uh, comparing Noah's Ark and the church, that there is a family inside. In the ark, there was but one family. There was Noah and his wife, his sons and their wives. And in the church, there's but one family, meaning the household of God. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 19 says, You're no longer strangers and foreigners, but fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. So uh, repeating that concept of in inclusivity, the church with Jesus serving as its entry point is really open for anyone to be a part of. And we have a responsibility to share that gospel with everyone so that they can be saved. The final point on this uh, idea of Noah's Ark in the church is that there is one vessel, meaning that Noah built a completely unique vessel of safety that God instructed, and other vessels simply would not function. Uh, I'm certain in those days that there were fishermen. I'm certain in those days that uh, items were buoyant. 
And so people who lived around Noah as the floodwaters raised probably clambered into their fishing boats and clambered onto things that would float and did their best to try to survive the flood. But if they weren't in the ark, God's body of safety, that saving body, then they weren't saved. Likewise, God has ordained that the church be where the saved are added and it's where uh, the faithful remain. We're a part of that church. And those who seek to uh, be a part of something but don't follow God's pattern are like people trying to float around in a fishing boat but not be a part of God's ark of safety. Again, Ephesians chapter 4, verse 4-6 through 6 says, There is one body and one spirit, one faith, one baptism, one Lord and one God. I'd like to end by uh, looking at the tabernacle and comparing it to the church. There's so much information on this subject. It probably deserves a standalone study. For the sake of time, we're not going to go into it very much. But look at the illustration, please. And what you'll see is that there's three main sections. There's a courtyard where they had sacrifice, and then the priest had to wash before they could go into the temple area, or the tabernacle area. You want to call it that. It's the tabernacle first, and then later it became the permanent temple that was built in Jerusalem. But it had a holy place with a few pieces of furniture in there for a specific purpose, and then there was a most holy place. There was a veil in between. But notice that the priest had to sacrifice and then wash, and they, they weren't allowed by law to go into the temple until they had washed. And once they washed, they were granted access into the temple area. What kind of a connection can we make between that and the church? The church is the spiritual tabernacle. And so with the uh, idea in mind, I mean, we can look to see that Jesus served as the, the sacrifice and high priest, Hebrews 1, 4, 9, such great examples. And then when we, uh, with Jesus serving then as the sacrifice, when somebody decides to obey the gospel, you know, they don't just get added to the church. They follow that saving body pattern. They are washed and then they are added into the church. So when we're baptized and we wash our sins away and we come out of the water, a new creature with our sins washed clean, we're in the Lord's church. Acts 2.47, the Lord added us there. We came up out of that water a Christian. We came up out of that water a member of the church and we're part of the household of God. We're part of that holy place, the Lord's church. We see that the Bible and prayer, God's communion and fellowship are with us in this holy place. And that the most holy, the distinction between us and that most holy place is really only limited to the physical nature of our eyes. We can't see heaven. We're not there yet but we will be someday. All over the world, the churches of Christ are a holy people, a royal priesthood, and set apart. We have been called out. We were given a new covenant, a law, a fellowship, and direct access to God. We are saved by grace through faith and are accountable to live faithfully from that point on until the Lord comes again or we die. I'd like to read from 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 9 one more time. It says, But you are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, His own special people, that you may proclaim the praises of Him who called you out of darkness 
and into his marvelous light.